The following episode of Bookmark was first broadcast November 21st, 2023. All right, good afternoon and welcome to Bookmarked on KZSM.org, your true community radio station where today the book under discussion is Saltfish Girl, a novel by Larissa Lai. And my guest is my uh, frequent and always welcome guest, Dr. Brandon Beck. Uh, you want to you say hi and uh, for the level that I can't see? Hello. Okay, yeah, you're, yeah, all right. Um, Brandon is... Okay, this is the latest, the last description you gave me. I don't know if it's still accurate. You have such an, an interesting life. Poet, monk, theologian, community educator, wisdom school teacher, and LB, LGBT activist. Anything I should sounds add? Good. No, that sounds great. Okay, all right. Uh, Larissa Lai is an American-born Canadian novelist and literary critic. Apparently, she's actually an academic and teaches somewhere in Canada. She's the author of four novels and three poetry collections. She's received the 2018 Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction and another Lambda Literary Award as well. Uh, anything I should add about her? But I like the description I read of her that identified her as a queer, diasporic Canadian author of Chinese descent. Oh. And the reason I like that is because <laughs> it, it included that her... Uh, grandparents were Chinese immigrants, not of their own choosing. And um, that diasporic Chinese descent piece is important to the literature that she writes. And then also to that academic piece, um, as of this fall, she took a job at University of Toronto, and she holds two chair positions there, one in Chinese American studies and the other in literature. Wow. And that, that's pretty astounding to be a chair of two departments. So diasporic is now, I thought that would mean anyone who for, well, you say no choice, but for economic or political reasons is displaced from their uh, original homeland. Right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, okay. And, I mean, I, I think that's my... Um, extreme liberal social justice leaning on that term to say mm -hmm. that they had no choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they probably had, you know. Um, all right. Um, an attempt at a summary. Um, the novel features two settings, South China in the late 18th, early 1900s, and a futuristic North America, probably maybe British, used to be British Columbia, uh, between 2044 and 2062. In this world, apparently run by corporations, people live either in walled communities like Serendipity, which is where uh, one, of the, uh, one of the narrators lives, at least at the beginning of the book, uh, or, in, or else they live in the dangerous, unregulated zone. Uh, the North American protagonist, Miranda, 
might be a reincarnation of the South China protagonist narrator, Nu Hua, and both young women seem to be part fish, maybe. Um, similarly, Miranda's lover, Evie, seems, at least I'm calling her Evie, maybe it's Evie, seems to re-embody the salt fish girl that Nu Hua loves. And each plot has a number of digressions as the women seek to survive and thrive in sometimes hostile environments. Uh, I don't know. What should I add to the summary? Uh, I'll talk more about it later, but I, I think that that'll do for now. Okay. Well, it was there's a lot going on in there, so I kind of didn't, you know, I thought it better to be sketchy in the beginning and then yeah. fill it in. Okay. So you suggested this book, and why? So I subscribe to a newsletter run by Eric Cervini, who owns a bookstore, and in his bookstore, he tries to sell only literature by queer people about queer people. Mm -hmm. And recently, he featured this book. Mm -hmm. And reading the biography of Larissa and the summary of Saltfish Girl as Eric wrote it, I knew I had to read it. Okay. And so I thought we should read it together. Okay. Well, it's been an adventure. All right. Uh, okay. I have to say I liked parts of it. I found what I think to be the central theme pretty intriguing and thought-provoking. But overall, I kind of felt like instead of motivation and character development, I would get another subplot, another weird fantasy, another uh, hypothetical world, and so on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote... Interestingly, the first part of this re review that I'm about to quote is actually blurbed on the back of the book. It says, Lai uh, is not lacking in imagination, which seems kind of the kind of tentative way to put it. And what he says is, each of these subjects is introduced with enough verve to make them interesting, but Lai shuffles them away too quickly. Other than Miranda herself, the characters in this world push by without consequence. And I kept thinking, you know, I would get into two characters and a situation and how they were dealing with the situation. And then would would that get developed? No, wham, we would go to some, some new world or, or some new character would appear or the character would completely uh, go somewhere else. And I found it frustrating. So um, what do you think the central theme is? Uh, well, I don't know if it's a central theme, but it's a, certainly a motif. It's about uh, origins and about how we talk about the origins of, of life. Because one of the things I like is the way, um, uh, the way she, she brings in a Chinese, I think it's a Chinese origin myth, and that is the beginning of the book. I loved, I loved the beginning uh, in which Nuwa sort of narrates her creation of the human race. And then later on, we talk about, about cloning and about um, <clears throat> gen genetic modification and all of those, which are also origins and ways of talking about how, where people come from and what makes people people. And I liked, I liked that. I mean, that's not the only thing that's going on here, but, um, you know, that, that was what I considered to be central. And there's, all, of course, there's also a, a critique of um, of irris corporate irresponsibility and exploitative factories and and all of that. I mean, that's that's definitely there part of it too. So, 
Okay, so we're on the same page then about the theme. And the reason I wanted to know that is that before I can talk about the idea of whether I felt something about the motivation and character development and plotting, um, I needed to know that we were on the same thing, mm-hmm. same, same plane about the central theme. Um, I thought that this was very much a neoliberalism postmodern book and typically neoliberalism literature has moved beyond postmodernism but i think that larissa has a really neat intersection of neoliberalism and postmodernism in this novel and in that kind of world where you're operating in two different structures of literature that are both trying to upend and subvert society through fiction the characters aren't what matters the plot is the allegory the message matters more than the characters and so i didn't mind that the character development wasn't great i was able to connect enough to the larger story and the mythopoetics that were going on and follow the spirals and the turns and things like that, that, that I loved what was going on with the plot because it was something to anticipate and turn with and follow through on, uh, without really knowing who was who and what was what. And that's part of the, the, paranoia that comes with postmodern fiction. Okay, I want to take you up on the paranoia that becomes comes with postmodern fiction. You've said you articulated that very well and that was sort of what I was guessing, you know, I was thinking maybe I'm just too old for this book. <laughs> but when you say something like how can you upend you said the goal of of both post you said Post neoliberalism and postmodernism was to upend the status quo. But how can you upend the status quo if you don't have a character developed enough for the reader to identify with and to, you know, um, <clears throat> to see that the status quo needs upending or to see ways to do it or something like that? That's that's my question. Well, I thought Miranda was your one. I thought you said Miranda was there. Uh, no, um, what's his name? Uh, Craig Taylor said Miranda was there. Um, oh, okay. And uh, you, you weren't agreeing with Craig? I, I was agreeing with Craig generally, but I, Miranda is... No, I, I, I didn't find enough there to identify from in, in some moments. Oh, oh, you were talking about how I liked the beginning. But I liked, yeah. the, beginning when, I liked the beginning when she was a goddess, and then I was going to wow. say, oh, okay, here comes this, what's going to happen when we put this goddess into the contemporary world, and how is she still going to be a goddess? But she kind of stopped being a goddess and became something else, and then something else, and, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, see what you're, I see what you're saying, and that, as I say, what you say is kind of what I suspected was going on with this, this book and who the audience was for it, but, yeah. mm, you know. And tell me, the, can you remember the... the I was going to question you about the last thing you said, 
at, at the end of the, at, at the end of that explanation, and now the now the phrase has deserted me. Um, paranoia. Paranoia. Yeah. Paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. What about as a characterization of postmodernism? Yeah. Yeah. Would you expand on that? Because I don't. Well, I sure. don't get it. <laughs> sure. Um, one of the things that postmodern literature is really good at, and one of the reasons that authors turned to writing in this uh, cryptic style, uh, circular style, um, mythopoetic style, magical realism style that's common in postmodernism is because of the connection post-industrialism, uh, post-world wars, the, the conflict between internal paranoia, who am I, uh, what am I doing here, where did I come from, where am I going, and the external paranoia, is the government watching me? What am I going to do if they are? What if all of this stuff that's happening is a conspiracy theory perpetrated on me? And how do I reconcile those two things? Mm -hmm. And I think that this book exhibits that piece of postmodernism really well. Um, the goddess herself, from the very beginning, experiences that internal paranoia. Why am I so lonely? Mm -hmm. when I'm the biggest, best thing here. Yeah. And if I'm alone, what is that reflection I see? It's, and why is it out of the why boat is it, why do you Why do you call it, we talk about loneliness and isolation, though. Why, do you, why is that paranoia? Why is that not just kind of, kind of a part of the human condition? Because we worry about it. It's that anxiety that comes with it. Uh-huh. We're not okay. Is something wrong with me alone. that I'm lonely? That's right. Okay. Not that I'm not that it's normal and, you know, everybody's right. okay. Oh. Uh I think I want to just go ahead and get into some specific uh aspects of the book, if that's okay with you, with all of yeah, with all of yeah. this still in mind. Uh this is fascinating. I mean, okay, I and I wanted to unpack with you one of the examples of a sequence that I that I find to be a, a digression. So okay. we are in, this is in the South China sequence, and Nuwa and Saltfish Girl have uh, run away from their village together because of their relationship, and they are trying to survive in Canton. And there's some interesting tension because um, Nuwa kind of, and she she, the character Miranda does this too, and you know becomes a thief, and you know is kind of living a little bit outside outside the law, and and so that's uh, that. And but Saltfish Girl has taken a job in a factory and wants to be wants to be legal and live a, a, a more respectable life. Um, so there they are, and they're struggling to survive, and it's Canton, and it's then all of a sudden, all of a sudden. Um, she sees a woman feeding pigeons. She was a foreigner and an outlandish one, looking one at that, dressed in white from top to toe, with long unpinned hair the color of sunlight, and eyes so pale they seem to be gazing inward instead of out. Uh, and then she sees the woman again. Um, she, the, the foreigner woman looked paler than ever, her pallor wasn't the sickly kind that plagued the saltfish girl who was exhausted from overwork. Um, her skin was so healthy, it looked uh, almost translucent. And uh, 
Nuwa just goes off because not I could not have wanted to, you know, she goes off and follows her. Surely I could have wrenched myself free of her grasp and turned around if I had truly wanted to do it, surely. And then they walk into a totally um, fantastic place called the City of Hope and Progress and Democracy, and Nuwa winds up, of all things, being a telemarketer. So clearly, no, we are not in Canton anymore. Uh, she learns to speak for, forgetfulian, which I did think was funny, by the way, and <laughs> rather than her, na her native Cantonese. Uh, but it just seems to, you know, it, it seems to pop up out of nowhere and be there for the sake of having the reader go, oh, wow, what's all this? I think that it, again, fits in with that neoliberal postmodernism. Um, and yes, maybe it was a little forced, but when you're talking about this Chinese diaspora, especially third generation like Larissa is, um, there's this questioning and drawing in for someone who is uh, third generation Chinese American of what did my grandparents and parents sacrifice? Who am I in this diaspora? And this mixing of magical realism into reality is common in, in postmodernism. It's common to have fragmentation and to have situational and structural irony in order to talk about something that's painful to the author and to people like the author and yet make it sort of fanciful and funny at the same time. And so she's commenting here on the idea that these Chinese people were brought here, not mm. knowing what they were going to be brought here for, or offered a way out of Mao's China mm -hmm. for all this opportunity. And then they got here and they lost their language. And they lost the traditions that were precious to them. And... Now maybe their grandchildren, great-grandchildren are looking back and trying to find what China was and meant to their grandparents and great-grandparents, but they forgot fully. And so uh, it will never be the same. Mm, okay. I, I sort of like that. I th and I thought, actually, I thought maybe it was an allegory about foreign intervention in China. I mean, this foreign woman who's very, very sort of exaggeratedly Caucasian comes and takes Nuwa away, mesmerizes her with uh, the promise of of the, with the promise of hope. The place is called the City of Hope, and uh, but it turn but she turns out to just be kind of enslaved. So I guess sure. you, yeah, I guess you could look at it either way. Um, yeah, or both. Okay, okay. I I guess I. I guess I get that. Uh, I think, by the way, that we are up on our first break, if that's okay, okay. with you. Yeah, it looks like it. All right. On the radio, this is the Sweet Honey Bear Blues on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Till 10 o'clock, you got me giving you what you just didn't know you needed. So I'll just keep going through the notes, if that's okay with you. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'll leave put the mics back on. We'll be on again in a minute. Okay. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. 
now on exhibition, I Pray You Survive, Riding on the Edge. The Whitliff explores how our best writers have personally confronted life or death situations, from war to pandemics, race riots, and murder to create their groundbreaking work. On display now at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at thewhitliffcollections.txstate.edu. All right, welcome back to Bookmarked on 104.1 FM and kzsm.org, where the book under discussion is Salt Fish Girl by Larissa Lai, and my guest is Brandon Beck. And we're, I wouldn't say we're reading two different books, but we're reading them perhaps as we, as we have, we, we didn't we once have a show in which we thought we'd read two different books? Or it yes, seemed absolutely. Li- it, seemed, it seemed like it, but in this case, we're, I think we're reading from two different perspectives and, and that... Um, that age has a lot to do with it. I am I am the old fashioned lover of narrative and char- narrative motivation and character development, and Brandon is trying to tell me through this book that uh, that uh, that other th- other things are are more important and or or are more essential to the book, or that that something else is happening. I mean, you could make you could make everything in this book kind of an allegory right uh and actually i had a question i had a question in here about who the audience for the book was because i was imagining two things um two kind of different groups one young adult readers who would love the 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 fantasy kind of for its own sake and the other was the kind of a kind of literary nerd who would want to par- who well you know who would want to parse out all the symbolism oh okay the city of hope uh, symbolizes this and uh, and but you're kind of suggesting a that a reader that would almost be a blend of both of those I I think so I think um, really I would consider Chinese American coming of age as the target audience it's it's people who are looking for a mirror of themselves um or people who are interested in understanding that culture or being an ally to that culture what does it mean to be a chinese american coming of age in america now Mm. in any of the americas so Um, i but i would read amy tan for that amy tan writings explicitly about the experience of being second generation and so on I, i mean i don't i didn't see much oh yeah they eat they eat chinese food uh, some things are, uh, but I didn't even see this a great is, deal of Chineseness is, as I would identify Chineseness. This is the same story. This is just written in a very different style. When I was a kid, this is the kind of book that I read. So yeah, it's it's got that um, intellectual, academic, postmodern turn to it, mm-hmm. but. So it may not be for everyone who's looking for that coming-of-age story in this cultural context, but it is for some people who need it in a slightly different way. Hmm. Okay. And is it is it popular with? Uh, or I don't I don't know if you would know that. I mean, who 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 enjoys reading it? I guess one from can- what I from what I can tell from reading on websites, it's popular with doctoral students who are studying Chinese diaspora. Oh boy! <laughs> well, all right. Uh, I, I, you know, the comparison that I was going to make was, 
I read that uh, Umberto Eco is the name of the rose, which I'm sure you're familiar with in graduate oh, school. Yes. And when I was in graduate school, I knew what, what everything meant in there and enjoyed parsing it out. But I'm a long way from there now, so uh, you know. So that's why I guess I think I'd be, you know, from your point of view, somewhat intolerant. And I'm going to go on being a little intolerant, and then, then sure. maybe I'll quit. Um, uh, Lie is a lesbian. She's won Lambda Awards. In uh, so it, this would certainly qualify on on the most obvious. Uh, level as lesbian fiction uh the the two pairs of protagonist and lovers are are also lesbian both women but on the other hand i didn't get that there was much exploration or affirmation of the lesbian experience i mean we're too busy kind of trying to find out if they're if they're really human or not or if they're part part fish or 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 whatever and i'm not saying that that's a that's a flaw necessarily but you know i as, as i say if i i see something labeled lesbian fiction it would be about what it was like for two women to love each other in a in a dominantly heterosexual culture and I didn't see that this was about that. Mm, yeah, so lesbian fiction is about so much more than just two women in love. It's the idea that patriarchy has to be subverted for women to have a chance to love each other or to be open about their love. Um, Lai said in an interview about this book, I was interested in undoing the patriarchal underpinnings of the founding myths of nation states in current historical systems, systematic racism and erasures of other narratives goes further to write a founding myth. And she needs to rewrite that so that travel and dislocation can be liberating because they deny racial purity and deny the primacy of the citizen tied to the land. And so she's doing that with the, the lesbianism, too. She wants to make sure that everyone can be a female deity in this incarnation. Mm. And she's using the deities, the cyborgs, the fish people to represent all marginalized groups. And the origins piece, that theme of origins is extremely important to that. People who live in this marginalization of queerness, we always struggle to know what is our origin. Are we good enough to be like God? And are we of God? Are we in God? And so ontology is huge for us. And for her to write this book where ontology is lesbian, this noir created her little clay figures and didn't like the way they were rolling yeah. around touching each other. And so she squashed them. Yeah. And then divided their legs and didn't like that even more. Yeah. So she was a fish because mermaids are non-gender specific we've we've made our own culture about these mermaids and said mermaids are girls and then there are mermen that are different but actually there's this ambiguous genitalia with these fish people well and, that's and in some ways symbolism. in some visual dis, dis depictions of mermaids 
there are no genitalia. I mean, it's exactly it's, it has no not only no gender, no gender. but no sex. Yeah, yeah, and so um, going for that to start everything, and then she goes to a female fish to get her own legs divided to go out in the world and is with women. Right. As her partner. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I actually, as you as you saw, I earmarked that to read from a little bit, and I would like to do that because I did. I did love that all that part. Um, yeah, and this is her. And she speaks, uh, and you know, she says, "Look, I have a woman's eyes, a woman's rope of smooth black hair extending past my waist, a woman's torso, and below." Forget modesty, here comes the tail, a thick cord of muscle undulating, silver slippery in the early morning light. I love this. In the beginning there was me, the river, and a rotten egg smell. I don't know where the smell came from, dank and sulfurous, but there it was. The stink of beginnings and endings, not for the faint of heart. And then she picks up a piece of mud, and this is a Chinese origin myth. Uh, right, and Nuwan yeah. is a, 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 I looked it up, um, picks, picks up a piece of mud, and she said, it began to look a little like me. I gave it a thick, smiling mouth. I gave it a stubby little tail so it wouldn't get too arrogant and think itself better than me. The mouth contorted into a rude shape. I pinched it back into place. I gave the thing some eyes so it could see who it was dealing with. The eyes opened and gazed at me insolently, and the mouth contorted again then settled in an insipid smirk. I laid my thumb into a little indent beneath the waist, and in a fury pressed until the tail split in two. The mouth opened. Ooh, the thing went limp. I smoothed the rough bits between the dangling flaps of bifurcated tail, trying to conceal the damage I had done. Pretend it was part of the original design. Ooh, sighed the thing. It began to breathe. Uh, I love the language there. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know, uh, that's beautiful. But there she is, and so she's definitely a goddess. But And I was disappointed that she wanted to be human and, and went to get her uh, her tail split into legs, uh, really. Uh, well, I thought it was a little, you know, going all Little Mermaid was the way I thought of it. Uh, yeah, and several critics have said that. But it's also a little Christian, the mm -hmm. Christian god becomes human to see what it's like down here right right and i got i caught that illusion and, uh, and also liked that a lot um and that she was going to do like the christian god she was going to do something that would be painful uh um, yes in order to uh and as i say I, I i really enjoyed that and you but it didn't you say that the the, the goddess aspect does not really drop out for you or to me you know it she kind of stopped being a goddess and started being something else it, it i think it's the important fact that it's always goddess mm. it it's that we are goddess all the time hmm. okay. all the life of nuwa and miranda and every incarnation is goddess and i wasn't surprised by the ending i thought that was beautiful i didn't know exactly what it was going to look like but it's the, the um, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Mm -hmm. The Gloria from the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I did like the ending, I have to, I have to say, but I, it took, 
took some doing to get there. And again, I want I want to pick up on what what and see see what else you have to say about what I uh, we both agreed is kind of a central theme, which is the whole idea of creation. Because um, y- you know, um, Nuwa is a goddess who creates people, and this is an actual creation myth, which of course, and, and a lot of parallels to the Judeo-Christian myth, you know, the, the and the descriptions are deliberate in the beginning, there's no form, and then she right. creates, there's water, and so on, and so it's all kind of, um, it, it's, all, it's all kind of beautiful and familiar. Uh, but then we learn that uh, uh, later that there is another kind of creation that's taking place in this future world when uh, Miranda finds that her her love, Evie, is, I don't know, one, one person calls it a cyborg, but I thought she said, I thought she calls it a clone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I belong, uh, she said, um, they belong to Aries William of Next Corp fame. They've been making people for years. Um, you know, and she says that uh, uh, I'm not human. My my genes um, are. She says they're making people. Um, you're telling me you're a clone. You don't need to be so crass. But that's illegal. Being one, yes, just about, but not making them. I've never heard of it being legalized. Says Miranda. There was an article in the papers last week about the ethics of it. I remember because a lot of the produce we sell is affected. Animals and plants are allowed, but not humans. I'm not human. I recoiled <laughs> slightly. My genes are three are point zero three percent Ciprinus carpio, freshwater carp. I'm a patented new life form. I stared, speechless. Uh, there must be laws, she says. Um, but that they used to ever since they learned how to you know uh, how to grow kidneys and livers in the lab, uh, then we ha- then we have this. Um, we're not designed. I don't. I got out. I, we're not design- designed for wits or willpower. But I was an early model. They can't control for everything. Maybe the fish was the unstable factor. Uh, and so here's another another kind of creation. The way. Uh, Oh, this, and this is a quote from the, the Wikipedia article, actually. Uh, the scholar Charlie Reimer says that Lai uses her novels to suggest new ways of understanding, su- such as her use of cyborgs in Saltfish Girl to criticize origin stories. And I didn't see that it was... I saw the parallels and thought they were just kind of to, to make you think about why, why do we tell the stories we do about origins? Why are they important? What do they mean to us? And not so much that this is a, a critique of origin stories. That, that one I didn't get. So um, let me read you a little more from Charlie Reimer's article that okay. Wikipedia quotes. Reimer says, Saltfish Girl is a thrillingly unruly sci-fi dystopia about a Chinese creator deity who lives multiple lives in vastly different times and spaces. It is concerned with labor issues, memory, and the nature of humanness. Mm -hmm. It is also a love story about two women of color who are repeatedly reborn 
and find each other each time trying to stay together. Underlying all of the plot elements in this narrative, though, is a curious and captivating obsession with the question of origins. That's very nice. Uh, I, you know, th- that re- that really covers it. And, and you know, I don't I don't know if I have have anything to add exactly. Although you didn't really address the the question of criticizing origin stories. I mean, you 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 mentioned that it is. Uh, dwells on the the question of origin you know which is one of the things i like but is it is is it a, a how is it a critique i mean that, that i just don't get that's, that's yeah i don't i don't know that it is i read that entire essay and i don't yeah. i don't think it's a critique of origins in rhymer's view oh well maybe you know maybe she's maybe i took that that or Wikipedia took that out of context because the yeah. the description that the quote that you just gave I think certainly does does the novel justice. Uh, oh, okay. You want to talk about smells a little bit? Yeah. Uh, smells are crucial to the plot, and you said that one of the things, and, and I would certainly agree that one of the things it's about is about memory. And I'm wondering if the emphasis on I mean they do say that smell is. Uh, powerfully connected to memory, you know. I mean, we've all had the experience of you you smell a Christmas tree and you're, you know, uh, right smack in the middle of your own childhood all of a sudden, or right. certain certain kinds of other other smells that you know powerfully evoke uh, a previous experience. Um, Miranda gives out a persistent odor like that of the durian fruit. Her mother craves before her conception. It's a smell. It smells like cat pee and pepper, and her lovemaking with Evie is described in terms of smell. And I have to read this: when she yes. when she kissed me, it was like both eating and drinking at the same time. The stench that poured from our bodies was overwhelming, something between rotting garbage and heavenly stew. We rode the hiss and fizzle of salt fish and durian, minor notes of sour plum, fermented tofu, boiled dong quai, all these things buried and forgotten in the years of corporate homogenization. Steam rose from us like water splashed on a hot pan of garlic greens. Whew! Mm. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about why so why it's such a uh lay even says this is a story about stink after all a story yeah. about about rot about how life grows out of the most fetid smelling places so i was reading an article by stephanie oliver who's a canadian literature professor and she made the point that in diasporic literature smell is often a factor and that it can be used as a metaphor for the diasporic experience because so often what people notice about immigrants first is the smell of the food they eat Mm -hmm. and unaffirming people in the country those others have moved to and i use others only in the context of this essay not because i think of people as others um people in the country where the immigrants have come are unfairly disgusted by the foods they smell in the workroom, um, Mm -hmm. in the restaurants that are new there. And 
so Stephanie Oliver posits that Saltfish Girl focuses on smells as another allegorical turn. Mm-hmm. I could certainly see that. I mean, and and but both things would happen, uh, particularly to the the person in dias in diaspora, as you say, because the right. the smells would evoke home and what was left behind, and yet they would be condemned as uh, as somehow disgusting. You just you just flashed made me flash back on a memory of the the African a, a crew of African American cleaners waiting to start cleaning a motel owned by Indians, you know, uh, oh, yes. Southeast, Southeast Asians, and complaining bitterly about the smell of, cu- of curry. Yes. Uh, you know, and that's, as I say, that's just uh, a, a memory, but certainly underscores what you say about, about smell. Uh, okay, we'll do a little more on smell, but right now we are up on another break. Great. Jane, stop this crazy thing. You've been listening to my groove box. I'm Carlos, so this is Carlos's groove box on KZSM. Okay, I'll just O-R-G. keep going. Anything you... Uh, uh, we'll probably make it through... Standard time, uh, San Marcos, Texas. Yeah, we'll probably make y'all. it through just through the notes, but not through the, the stuff at the end of the what extra. we have not covered. Is that, is that fine okay. with you? Bookmarked okay. is yeah, that's good. in part right. by the Whitliff Collections. Subscribe to our email list today and stay in the know about all the great events, exhibitions, and news happening at the finest collection of literary, photography, and music holdings in the Southwest. The Whitliff Collections is free and open to the public. We're located on the seventh floor of the Alkek Library at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at thewhitliffcollections.txstate.edu. All right, we're, you're listening again to Bookmarked on uh, KZ, KZSM 104.1 FM and or, or kzsm.org. Uh, and I should remind you that the opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and guest only, and not those of KZSM or its parent corporation, SMTXCRA. And we are talking about Saltfish Girl by Larissa Lai with uh, my my frequent and always welcome guest, Dr. Brandon Beck, uh, and we were just talking about the the prominence of smells in this this novel, which I liked. And again, and I know you, now now I'm, I've I've been in this conversation long enough that I know how you're almost how you're going to explain. You know, I was <laughs> going to bring up another frustration and then have you you explain it. Um, okay. It's well, there's there's something called the dreaming disease. Sure. Uh, as Miranda, the uh, the well, not contemporary, but the future protagonist, uh, has an odor. She smells like durian fruit, which in turn smells like cat pee and pepper. And some people like it, and some people don't. Um, but then it turns out that maybe she's a victim of the dreaming disease. And the dreaming disease seems to afflict people who have uh, with, they have strange smells and they relive certain things in the past. Um, Stories of the dreaming disease began to circulate more widely. We heard from our customers of a girl who smelled of cooking oil who remembered all the wars ever fought. 
She could recall and recount every death, every rape, every wound, every moment of suffering that had ever been afflicted by, by a member of her ancestral lineage. I thought that part was interesting. Um, and, and then there is a, a doctor who is supposedly treating people for this, although he is not a, turns out to be not a positive character, I don't think. Um, foul odors of various sorts that follow the person without actually emanating from the body. Psoriasis sleep apnea, terrible dreams usually with historical content, and a compulsive drive to commit suicide by drowning. We don't, even know, we don't even really know if it is a disease. We're still trying to isolate the virus. Well, I thought the, that Miranda's smell was part of her being the incarnation of a goddess, but then it turns out that having a, a really weird smell is part of having the dreaming disease, and I got confused again. So I think it is part of being a goddess. And I think that this ability to connect to knowing that you are a goddess manifests and accepting who you are yes i have this smell and it's okay i don't need to fix it mm -hmm. i just need to get to know my goddess mm -hmm. i need to become one with who i am i've been trying to separate from it i'm gonna come back to it and guess what i'm not the only one we all are yeah goddesses and more and more people are awakening to this Mm -hmm. reunifying I'm we're all connected oh look we're finding each other and she had known in the past she and Nua were together before and uh, now they're finding each other again because Evie remember Evie is this saltfish girl yeah 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 uh, and they have sort of gills okay I, I, I get that part then that, you know, about the smells and accepting the, accepting the self uh, as a goddess. But these people have terrible dreams that recreate historical, painful historical events to the point of wanting to commit suicide. It's because it's in juxtaposition with what society is doing. Okay. Society is telling them that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. so, Seeing a truth that's completely counter to what's going on in society is tough. Mm -hmm. So, the ability to see that truth and the the uh, and the the need to accept your own smell are part of the same thing as as you see. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they want to kill themselves by drowning. Mm -hmm. But when Miranda finally goes down into the water, she doesn't die. No, because that's because she's, she's part because she's part fish. It's because Nuwa is down there. Uh, I, well, I thought Miranda sort of was Nuwa, or uh, you know, they have those gills on those almost gills on their in, behind their ears or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they're. They're fish, and we're all fish, and we're all born out of water. And that's uh, right. Uh, that's right. Okay, I, I got that part. <laughs> anyway, so the water can't the water can't hurt us. Of course, we want to return to the water. Yeah. Uh, there are rumors that we're talking about, again about the dreaming disease, which is part of uh, uh, part of part of a part of the the uh, 
futuristic plot. Uh, there are rumors that the disease is spread through the soles of the feet. <laughs> feet and shoes are particularly important, uh, partly for the what I'm thinking of as the political or uh, you would probably call the neoliberal uh, part of the story, the comments on labor. A company called Palace, which is must be based on Nike, uh, dominates. They employ clone slave labor, which uh, actually Evie is Evie is one of the a whole bunch of clones, all of all of most of whom are called Sonia. Um, but she, she says shoes these days were like cologne, holding the mysterious promise of life eternal. And she has some passages in which she imagines, uh, Miranda imagines uh, frustrated housewives sort of fantasizing or um, kind of feeling uh, validated by their shoes. And I would you like to talk about shoes and feet in here? Uh, well, the only thing I could think was that it must be somehow connected to the bifurcation in the creation story. We didn't have feet. We couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. And then Noir bifurcated us, and the only thing we could do was walk away from her. Mm-hmm. And so now shoes are the thing that keeps us separated. We don't know ourselves because we're consumed with our shoes. Yeah. I, okay. I like that. Uh this is uh, Miranda's mother, who also seems to have been sort of a fish, maybe. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, was a, a cabaret singer. And there's a scene in which Miranda puts on one of her mother's dresses and goes to the same cabaret, which is that where her mother performed, which is as has come down in the world considerably. Uh, but she does sing the song successfully, and, and she actually then sells the song to uh, some kind of advertising agency or something, which is a, an arm of Palace. Um, and we have the whole, we have the whole song. Uh, and again, I thought this, the song basically is the the red shoes in which the shoes dominate and eventually uh, uh, dance the the wearer to death. But the tone of it seemed very, I mean, this is supposed to be this this soulful, painful song, but it, it, it sounds more like a nursery rhyme. Here's a song for Clara Cruz, a pretty girl who loved her shoes. Redder than a red, red rose, the patent leather showed her toes. She fell in love with them on sight, the soles, they made her feel so light. The pretty shoes of Clara Cruz, she danced in them throughout the night. Uh, dancing, whirling Clara Cruz, danced to show she loved her shoes. Danced in them throughout the day, tired though she would say. And when her feet began to ache, she, couldn't, she tried to stop but couldn't shake. The pretty shoes of Clara Cruz, they danced her till her heart did break. And this goes on and on. But I, what did you make of the tone of that uh, supposed song, which, as I say, gets quoted in, in, in its entirety? Well, I, there again, I think that that's this, um, another technique of postmodernism. Black humor is such a part of postmodernism. And that's it. You know, the, the stabbings that happen... 
the oh um, yeah the stabbings i mean people get it in in several moments and often it's nuwa or uh uh you know one of the in a sense, there are four protagonists, you know, but often mm-hmm. it's one of them, and she whips out a, a fish knife, and yeah. inevitably it goes to the to the gut, and someone yeah. and someone is someone is stabbed. This happened several times. Oh, that's black humor, huh? That's supposed to be yeah. funny. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why is that supposed to be they're funny? Gu- they're gutting people like fish. They're they're fish girls uh, who sell salt fish. And they carry fish knives and gut people like fish. Because remember when Nuwa created the world, she created women strong and men weak. And the mm-hmm. women are gutting men like fish. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Do people who read this really parse all this out? I guess they do, huh? Or maybe well, they I mean, just... Some of us do. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. but I mean, you know, the... so And you already suggested that that's, that's the, the kind I of person who I think that's who it's for, this. yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think also the the shoes of Clara Cruz. It's the first song that the dad wrote the melody for. It's mm-hmm. the first time they collaborated on a song, mm-hmm. and we n- now know that the mom dies, mm-hmm. basically killed by Miranda in a freak accident. And so it's, it's and why do you why do we need that? That's another one of the why well, do we need that? She's that, she's killed by Miranda because a a, a big crate of dur, durian fruit falls on her. It's all about the durian. The durian is magic in this book. Yeah. And so there and there's something going on with how people are created, born, conceived, um that is crucial to this new creation story that is being written here. Mm. Yeah. So we have to have magical moments like that that are dark, black. So. Oh, okay. Because in order to create, you have to destroy? Yeah. Uh, uh. Because those death and birth are part of life and they reiterate over and over. They bifurcate and reiterate. Mm-hmm. It's chaos theory. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. You certainly you have increased my my appreciation of this. Although you know, it's never going to turn into the kind of book I would pick up for fun. <laughs> um, so this this must bring me to the climax where we learn about the durian tree, and this is this is wonderful. Um, the Sonyas. Uh, who are cyborgs or clones, depending on how you want to read it, uh, have escaped from their bondage and are living in a kind of a com- an all-female commune, and they are managing to reproduce. They have children, and we learn how this happens because um, it happens from this tree, okay, that's is sitting outside their house. Uh, Sonia 14 says it started a century ago. They were implanting human genes into fruit as fertility therapy for women who could not conceive. And of course, the pollen blew every which way and could not be contained, and fertilized the fruit of trees bred for other purposes. Trees bred to withstand cold climates, trees bred to produce fruit that would strengthen the blood. Perhaps some natural mutations were also involved. What we learned was that the fruit of certain trees could make women pregnant without any need for insemination. You know... 
Uh, I thought about my mother and the durian tree of my beginnings. I thought about all the durians that moved through my parents' shop and wondered how many of them were of this wonderful sort, <coughs> since none of the durians we stocked came from certified sources. And then I remembered the one I had eaten at the Sonia's house. I remembered the creamy yellow flesh, the paper pissy flavor that seeped into the body before it registered as taste. Suddenly, the strange movements I had felt of late within my body began to make sense. I had no reason up till now to think of myself as pregnant, so I did not. But she is pregnant from yes. eating the fruit. And you said you particularly liked the ending. Would you like to expand on that? For in the well, next? We have like four minutes left. Yes, absolutely. So now we have a lesbian woman um, impregnated by a fruit slash cyborg. Right. And that's, you know, what better can you ask from lesbian fiction than to have two women, one who's mm, kind of a woman, kind of a fish, kind of a robot, impregnating mm -hmm. another via fruit. It's, mm -hmm. That's lesbian fiction at its best. Oh. Okay, uh, I, I guess so. Um, what do you? What have we not talked about that you'd like to bring out in three minutes? Um, well, I, I, the part of the plot you mentioned how um, Saltfish Girl was diligently working when the white woman came and took Miranda away. No, she took um, Nuwa away. She took Nuwa away. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to point out that what Saltfish Girl was doing was fleeing um, a murder charge because she had killed a man who was trying to rape her. Right. And the bosses caught her and made her go to work in a small machine factory putting gears in toys. Mm -hmm. And then in the future, uh, Miranda became a thief stealing those toys in an antique shop. That's right. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I did not make that connection. Uh, so you're going to tell me that the toys are symbolic of something, aren't you? The wind-up toys. What, I mean, I was kind of fascinated by that, but I didn't quite know what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the idea that we all are those wind-up toys to some god or goddess somewhere in lies narrative. Mm. Oh, wait a minute. No, I thought we were all goddesses. God or, gods are goddesses. And it's uh, the same thing, right? That's that yeah. perpetual internal circle, outernal circle. We, yeah. we come and go and are gods and toys at the same time. Ah, I suppose so. And that does go back to our being made or created, whether we are made or created in the image of a god, or we are made or created in a laboratory, as, as the characters are in, in here, some of them are. Um, right. In order to create, in order with some particular goal that's going to go awry. I mean, I love the fact that the fruit blo blows all over the place and, of course, you know, <laughs> does, does something unexpected. So, yes. All right. Well, I'm, uh, you've, you've made me glad I read this after all. Uh, Good. And, and it was like our conversation has been very enlightening. Uh, so, uh, and have, have, a very, have a very fine Thanksgiving. Uh, you too. All right. And uh, thank you again, Brandon Beck, for uh, calling in and talking to me. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>